Hello and welcome to the TCT Podcast. I'm Head of Content Daniel O'Connor and this week we'll be bringing you the final inductee to the TCT Hall of Fame. During a gala dinner at the TCT Awards on the 26th of September, three more maestros of manufacturing will join the illustrious crowd that includes Scott Crump, Chuck Hull, Hans Langer, Adrian Bowyer and Fried Van Kran. Our final inductee of 2018 is a man many feel should have made the cut last year. Fortunately, those protesters got their act together and voted for Dr. Carl Deckard, inventor of selective laser sintering, in their droves. After being inspired by a visit to the Henry Ford Museum as a child, Carl dreamed of becoming an inventor. Whilst working at iron-based machine shop TRW Mission, Carl had his eureka moment. Here in conversation with myself, he picks that story up. My first exposure to 3 dimensional CAD was at TRW Mission. People have claimed for a long time that you could go from a CAD model directly to a CNC program. Um, you know, wasn't actually true at the time. I don't know if it's even true now. Um, um, but uh, the the shape, much of many of the shapes that uh, uh, they started with came from the foundry. And the, and traditionally casting patterns were made by hand, and I thought, wow, that, that's the the hole in the process of being able to go from a three dimensional CAD model to you know virtually any shape. And so that was you know it's like, oh, there's there's an opportunity right here. So that's you know that's what got me thinking in that direction. I saw an opportunity. I didn't see. I didn't know how to do it. And so the kind of the the, the eureka moment probably came about two and a half years later. <laughs> so it took from seeing the opportunity to to really knowing how to address the opportunity was was about three uh, two and a half years. I watched a YouTube talk that you did, and in it you talked about how you went home and started playing with salt and sugar. Did you presume at first that you would achieve three-dimensional objects with a deposition process? Yeah, that's that's a reasonable description. You know, the first concept was imagine uh, 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 doing a sand painting, um, and but doing layer after layer after layer of sand painting, uh, and but you know. Um, and, and I believe there are people, there are people now who are pursuing that. Uh, but it's, um, you know, I just, I looked at it, it's like, wow, this is going to be difficult to get the, you know, get any kind of detail. So that's, that's when I switched over to thinking about, well, let's lay down an entire layer of powder and then do something to it. The next step for you was to, that you were going to grad school and, uh, you realized that you might be able to work on this project whilst you were at the University of Texas. Can you just tell me a little bit about how it worked, you know, while you were doing you were doing your master's degree and your PhD and inventing at the same time? There were several examples in my department of students that had um, come up with their own projects. So I wasn't the only one. You know, one one of the examples I was looking towards was a guy who uh, 
built this really interesting liquid piston engine, or which, uh, but um, which is a whole other story. <laughs> but he did the the analysis for his master's degree, and they built it for his PhD. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a reasonable way of approaching it. But really, you know, without building it, I wouldn't have known what to analyze. Um, you know, even all these years later, um, um, you really can't – you don't learn much from the analysis if you don't do the experiments. But then uh, uh, there was there was – there was a we just moved into a new building and there was a a fund to equip the building and so there was some money available and my professor said there's money available now it's going away soon figure it out and so I was like okay and so that's when I went and inspect the the original system you know getting the equipment was the biggest hassle after I got the equipment, you know, it was only a short period of time, a few months, um, that it took uh, from the time that I got the equipment all installed and working um, from that time until I was actually making, made something that, um, that Joe Beaman said, hey, that's good enough for our masters. So it was a couple, you know, several months. So the, the hardest part was getting the equipment. <laughs> I listened to a conversation with um, Joe Beeman that was on the University of Texas website, and he was saying that you know the money that you mentioned that was available was that because there was because the oil business in Texas was drying up and they decided to invest in technology. Well, the, 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 you know they built a build, brand new building. What's what's good? What's, what good is a, a building that doesn't have any equipment in it? Back in the late 1800s, I'm, I'm not sure exactly when the um, uh, the government of the state of Texas set aside these huge amounts of this worthless West Texas land as a fund for, to fund universities. Well, that worthless West Texas land had some not so worthless oil underneath it. And so, um, um, so that's where a lot of, um, the, the wealth of the university, the, uh, the state university system in Texas came from was from West Texas oil. Well, that money can only be spent on certain things. So you can't, you can't take that money and go spend it on salaries, for example. But you can spend it on buildings. So when they build a building, they make sure that they, as part of the building, that they put in money for the equipment. Because you know, that's the only, that's the, the means by which you could spend um, this permanent university fund money um, on equipment. That's how what I thought was going to be a, a paper exercise became a real experimental exercise. And, and you know, the thing is that, that there's no way that um, there's no way I would have gotten there without building it. You know, I had to build it. Um, so and. And I think that any analysis that I might have done um, before building it would have been pretty much useless. So it was the the fact that this, you know, that the money was available that changed it into an experimental project that, you know, actually made it, you know, go forward. 
if I was to say to you uh, the words physical constant, what would that uh, mean in terms of that um, the first machine that you built? Well, um, so I had to spec the system, and I had to give um, Joe a budget. And I spec'd out the system, and it uses little bitty laser and a really, really fast scanner. And um, and it just didn't seem right. It's like, this just, you know, this just doesn't make sense that, that you could do this with that small a laser and that, at that speed. But I kept going back over and over and over my calculations. I couldn't find the error. Well, it turned out the error was um, was in copying a physical constant, the heat of fusion of iron, from one page to the other in my notebook and losing three orders of magnitude. And so that's why I'd spec this teeny tiny laser and a super fast scanner. Well, once I found the problem, uh, it wasn't too, the, you know, the, the bigger laser and slower scanner that I ended up with were within the budget that I'd already given, uh, Dr. Beeman. So, um, but had I not caught that error, um, that probably would have been the end of the project. And it, and another one of the components of that early machine was a, a luggable version of a Commodore 64, which, you know, to my knowledge is something that I played the earliest computer video games on. Can you just tell me about how that, how the programming worked? What kind of like file sizes were you working with? The Commodore 64 was actually, you know, a, a really nice machine. One thing that was really wonderful about the Commodore 64 was that all the documentation you needed was in one book, and it was all correct, which was not the case with the early, um, earlier computers from other manufacturers. Another thing that was really, really nice was that it had a user port. So you can actually plug a physical plug into the computer and... Um, and there will, and the plug will show, will, um, uh, have, uh, TTL, um, uh, signals on the pins that correspond to a given memory location. So it was really easy to interface to. And it also gave you access to the interrupts. Well, sometime later, we tried to do the same thing with an IBM PC. And it turned out to, to be much, much, much more difficult. One reason was the, uh, the documentation was was wrong, um, and you had to have an interface card. You know, now you would do it with an Arduino um, or something similar. So the the the, the Commodore was really nice because it had that. You know, you had direct access to the inside of the machine through a plug, and you know. At the time, the, the interface cards, you know, cost several, for an IBM PC, cost several, many times as much as the Commodore 64 cost. So what I did is I wrote a program where it, um, uh, put, it output a six-bit digital value corresponding to where I wanted to toggle the laser next. That value went to a digital analog converter. The analog value from the converter, uh, went to a comparator, and then uh, the feedback system from the scanner went to the other side of the comparator. When the two values crossed, 
the output, the status comparator would change, and that was connected to a non-maskable interrupt. And so whenever those two values changed, it would run the program. Program was all of 153 bytes long and took 25 microseconds to run. And that would bring out the, the, you know, it would turn the laser on or off depending on what, um, you know, if it was at the start or the end of a, where I wanted it to, to melt. Um, and it would then, you know, give you the, the next value where you're gonna, um, where you're gonna change it. So, um, so this system was making the decision to turn the laser on and off based on where the scanner actually was rather than making that decision based on where we guessed that the scanner is. Anyway, I think I'm getting into too much detail there. But no, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, what, can you just talk to me actually a little bit about specking the Godzilla machine and how that became too much of a project? Well, we we um, we started out with a set of of requirements, and we followed the requirements till their logical conclusion. And what we ended up with was a really big, expensive machine that was going to take a long, long time to build. And at that point, as we realized, or I realized that, you know, we had just, you know, reached too far. And, um, and it's like, okay, maybe we need to back off on these requirements. And then we backed off the requirements, and then that's, um, and started over, and that's how we ended up with the machine that, you know, became known as, known as Bambi. Um, uh, but it was still a really big, big machine. <laughs> you know, big and heavy. Um, but it, it, you know, demonstrated to the world that, um, that we can make stuff. And there's also a really interesting story of yours about how you, um, put together a machine and the first time that you got it to work was a, was a demonstration. Is that right? Can you just tell me that story? That's correct. The first experimental setup, um, kind of evolved over time. And then it, it I got to the point where I realized that I wasn't going to make any further progress until I went to a, a closed system. The, the original setup was, um, open to the room air. Um, and so I, um, I, you know, designed my new system. I started working on it. It was built in a, um, in an electrical box. That's what I used for my, uh, my process chamber. And, um, and I got to the point where, um, in order to proceed with the new machine, I had to disassemble the old machine. And once I did that, there was no going back. And at that point in time, there was two weeks before this, this really important demo for DuPont, uh, the most important demo up until that date. And so, um, you know, I, I was like, well, do I sit still for two weeks and show them what I already have, or do I move forward? I was like, well, I'm going to move forward. And I was able to get it um, completed um, and it was still like three days of test, three or four days of testing 
before the demo. And every time I ran it, the, you know, it failed to build a part for one reason or another. And, um, uh, I was able to come up with workarounds for the various problems I encountered, but I didn't have enough time to really come up with real solutions. So, um, so it was, it was actually during the demo was the first time that I actually made a part. That must have that must have felt brilliant when it did make the pass. Well, um, I will never forget. You know, after they left, sitting down with the guy that was that was a you know kind of a helping to approach at at the time, and telling him, you know, that's the first time that machine worked. <laughs> he was like, oh yeah. <laughs> There's a, there's a really interesting story that you tell during that speech at the Maker Faire about how one of the machines that you built or that that you guys built was just too automated and it failed and it was not a great machine and it wasn't until the center station, the next machine, when you stripped that all back. Can you just tell me a little well, bit that, about, about that story? Going back to the, the Bambi story, we started out with requirements, we moved logically forward, we came up with a design, we realized that, that we had overreached, we backed off, we built a, a less ambitious machine. Well, um, essentially, that's what happened at DTM several years later. It's just that um, we didn't we didn't back off from the machine um, um, and as soon as we saw how complicated it was, it was only after it was built and we saw all the problems, and um, that we finally basically um, scrapped the machine that we had designed in-house, brought in outside designers, and started over. And so that, um, and that's what led to the center station. If we had sold the 125, which were the, um, the machines, the first machines that were built off campus, that were built uh, by Jim City Engineering, in Dayton, Ohio, um, a you know, full-service design and build shop. If we had sold those machines, we would have beaten 3D systems to the market with parts that were not fragile. Because at the time, their photopolymer parts were really fragile. And our parts, you could take them and throw them on the ground, they wouldn't break. But because we took the detour of trying to make um, – you know, this machine that did everything for everybody, it ended up costing us about 18 months. During that time, 3D Systems improved the materials um, much more than we had imagined that they could have. And so by the time we had a machine to bring out on the market, they already, you know, they'd already beat us to the, to the market with, you know, acceptable material properties. The, the beta machine, the, you know, one of the biggest problems was that, um, we were trying to jump ahead and put everything under control of the computer and have all these interlocks and the the you know you'd be six or eight hours into a build and everything's looking great and then one parameter goes outside of range that was set by the software guys without consultation uh, with process folks and the machine would just shut itself off. And so, essentially, our beta machines were, we shipped non-function, or we shipped beta machines that just were not ready. And we could have had them ready in maybe another two or three months, 
if we would have. But um, but Goodrich insisted that we could not flip the schedule, and so we shipped these machines that, and you know, you'd be halfway through a build and they just shut themselves off. Were those machines a little bit ahead of their time in terms of automation, and were they trying to be? Were they trying to automate every step of the process? And is that how machines work now? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a process guy. I like having control of the knobs. And, but the sales folks, you know, they ever, you know, they wanted to push this to a machine that could be run with somebody with absolutely no training. And so that meant taking away the knobs. On the, the, the Bambi machine, it was a fairly simple machine. I mean, it, and it had fairly, you know, the, the scanner was controlled directly by the computer, and then it also had another box that controlled the, the motion. Um, um, the, the 125, the machine that we built up in, in Dayton, Ohio, similarly, it had, uh, it had discrete temperature controllers, with buttons that you could change the temperature, uh, rather than having it all controlled by the computer. It had, you know, a knob for the laser power. And, um, so it wasn't, it wasn't an overreach. But then the next machine was an overreach. We were trying to do way too much, uh, and control way too much. And, you know, the, or the original requirements were that the customer never touched the powder. So essentially they wanted a breakout system uh, available, or I believe is available, with the HP machine, you know, all these years later. But they wanted that back, you know, back in 1990. Being the process guy, I would think the way that, that things should work is that sales and marketing and the process folks work out what the parts have to do. And then the process people tell the machine people what the machine has to do to support the process to make those parts. And then the process people tell the software people what the software needs to do um, to make those parts. And then the process people tell the materials people what the materials people need to do to make those parts. That's the way, that's the logical way of doing it. But we didn't do it that way at, back at DTM. The, um, the materials folks, um, weren't even DTM people, they were Goodrich people. The the marketing people told them, you know, told everybody pretty much what they wanted um, without really consulting with the process folks. And the software people didn't listen to anybody. And so that's that's how we ended up with this unusable beta machine. And essentially we had to <clears throat> declare defeat and start over. And that's how the finish station came about. I'm just glad that um, Goodrich was committed enough to hang with us, even though we would made this, this enormous mistake. Some great lessons to be had there from our final inductee to the TCT Hall of Fame for 2018, Dr. Carl Dackard. I'll be joined by Carl and his two fellow inductees, Ellie Sachs and Greg Morris, on the TCT Show conference stage at 11am on the 26th of September for a panel session on how the past can help to shape our future. Thanks to our partners on TCT Awards, Innovate UK, 
and thanks to you for downloading and listening. Until next time.